I invite you to click in your Bible or turn the pages of your Bible, whichever, to Acts chapter 20. We're going to begin in a moment in verse 17. Acts chapter 20, verse 17. As you turn there, I'd like to, uh, to point out to you that there are a lot of phrases that we use to which we do not pay attention. We say things without thinking about what we're saying. For example, many people will use the phrase, I could care less, when they mean that they don't care at all. But if you stop to analyze that, I could care less. That means I I care to some degree and it would be possible to care less. Well, we really mean I couldn't care less. I care so little that it's not possible to care any less. And I can see that many of you couldn't care less. Maybe this one will get your attention a bit more. Things like ATM machine. ATM machine. What does the ATM stand for? Automatic teller machine. An ATM machine is an automatic teller machine machine. It's okay to just say the ATM. Pin number is another one that falls into that category. My personal favorite is this one, tuna fish. You ever thought about that? Why do we say tuna fish? Is there another type of tuna in our lives that we need to clarify? We don't say chicken bird. I don't have beef mammal sandwiches. Why do we say tuna fish? You know, the one that really tops it off, the one that really shows that we are not thinking about what we're saying, and I hope we're not saying this at all, but I hear this. When asked about the weather, I've heard people say that it's colder than hell outside. Really? That's informative. On the hottest day of July, you can safely say that. How is that helpful? We don't think about what we're saying. And one of the words that we use without thinking about its meaning is the word farewell. Farewell. We don't think about what that really means. We just simply mean go away sometimes. But the truth is that the word farewell means that I want you to to be good, to do good and to have happiness. I want you to be well. I want you to fare well. I hope that the next time we meet, you're in good shape. Farewell. The text before us this morning is often regarded as Paul's farewell address. Oh, he's got a lot of life left But the Spirit has revealed to him that his life's about to change. That he's not going to be free to just roam the countryside as a missionary. But from here on in, his future is going to be uh, put before him by others than himself. This is his last chance to meet with the elders in the important church in the important city of Ephesus. And he brings to them a farewell address. But this is not a casual use of that word. It is not just that Paul is saying so long, but rather he wants them to fare well. And he shows them and us how to do that, how to 
farewell in this world. Let's consider now the word of Almighty God, beginning in Acts chapter 20, verse 17. Now from Miletus, he sent it to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. You remember last week, we saw that he didn't want to go back through Ephesus because he didn't want to get way late. He's trying, he's hurrying on his way to Jerusalem. So he doesn't want to go back to Ephesus and have to say hi to everybody and visit every home and connect, reconnect with everybody. But yet he wants to connect with the elders. So he lands in the city of Miletus and has the elders come down and meet him. Picking up in verse 18. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold... I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, not as, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay attention, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and he prayed with them. With them all, and there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. This is the word of God. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Spirit, let us hear Paul's message to the Ephesian elders, and let it be your message to us today. We are uh, facing affliction as Paul faced, and yet we, we see what he did in the face of that. We are facing trials. We are uh, uh, challenged to uh, uh, abandon some parts of the, uh, the counsel of God. Lord, we face many of the very things that Paul has outlined here. And so we look forward to hearing from you in this text 
and to being encouraged by you and being challenged by you and where need be to be convicted of sin by your Holy Spirit. Most of all, Lord, we look to the comfort that is found in knowing that the perfection that is required is provided in our Savior Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Many of you will perhaps recognize the name Warren Buffett. Uh, Warren Buffett, uh, uh, for decades, was one of the two or three richest people in the world. He's still up on most of those lists, but his place has been dropping. For most of the last 15 years, he's been actively giving away billions and billions of dollars. Um, And he's been uh, as part of a charitable foundation. There are a lot of interesting stories about Mr. Buffett. One of them is how he handled his wealth with regard to his children. As I understand it, what he did with his kids as he was raising them and as the billions were beginning to accumulate, is he expressed to his children that they should not expect to inherit his billions of dollars, that he had always planned that one day he would give it away. And yet... He didn't want his children to be left to fend for themselves. So what he did was that he provided each of his children a cost-free education at the institution of their choice. They could go to the top college, university in the world, and he would pay for it. And upon graduation, he would give them $100,000. And he said to his children, and simply this, no one else gets that kind of leg up in this world. Nobody else starts life with a debt-free, top-tier college education and $100,000 in the bank. If you can't make it with that head start, you don't deserve to squander the billions. It's an interesting approach. Because what he has done is he had said to his children, I want you to fare well. And I'm going to give you help in doing so. He did not merely kick his kids out of the house when they turned 18 and say farewell. But he gave them a mechanism by which they might farewell. If they took advantage of what he gave them, then they had every possibility of faring well. I think that's a good illustration of what we see in this text this morning. That Paul does not simply say to the Ephesian elders, farewell and you're on your own to figure out how, but rather he sets before them uh, 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 an, uh, an example of how to fare well found in his own life. He gives them instruction on how to fare well right here in this meeting. He gives them a commendation, a, a simple little statement of the essence of what it takes to fare well, all of which comes before he finally says farewell. He does not leave the Ephesian elders or us to fend for ourselves. Farewell was not for Paul a, a, a statement about which he didn't think of its content and meaning. Rather, he reflected on what it would take to farewell. So let's take a look at this text a little more carefully as we break down some of these different elements. First, we see Paul's example of how to fare well. In verses 17 through 27, and a little bit later in the text also, we see Paul outlining, by example, how to fare well. First of all, it's interesting to note that Paul does hold himself up as an example. 
So by this point in his ministry, he has already written the letters to Thessalonica and to Corinth. And in 1 Thessalonians, one of the very earliest letters of Paul, he, in, in, in 1 Thessalonians 1.6, he says that he is an example to be imitated. That the Thessalonians were, were living like him and Timothy. They were modeling their lives after, their, uh, after Paul's and Timothy's lives. And then in 1 Corinthians uh, 4.16, and again in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, he explicitly tells the Corinthians to imitate him, to be like him. That's an astounding thing. How many of us can say with a clear conscience, with our fingers not crossed behind our back, you ought to behave like me. You ought to imitate me. My sister, when her children were very young, had above her kitchen sink a little just a little thing she had typed up and cut out and stuck up there that said, they're imitating you, referring to her little children. Who are you imitating? They're imitating you. Who are you imitating? Paul holds himself up as an example. And then he begins to outline why. It's not that he was an example of perfection. It's not that he thought he had mastered everything. But rather, he does talk about how he had lived. What's the first thing we see there in verse 18? How I lived among you the whole time from the first day. Paul provided a consistent example. That what you saw with Paul is what there was to Paul. Paul was not one person. He goes on to talk about how he did it in public and at home, in privacy, private. He's not one guy out in public and another guy at home. He wasn't one guy in the hardware store and another guy when he was out on, you know, fishing on the boat or whatever. He's just, he's the same guy. I lived a consistent life from day one in front of you. This is one of the downfalls of many of us as pastors is that we do not have this kind of consistency in our lives. Over the last few years, many of us have seen in the news the various pastors who have stumbled in big and public ways because of the inconsistencies of their own lives. We have a God who is gracious and forgiving, and he forgives our inconsistencies, and he forgave many of Paul's. But Paul will be the first to tell you that should we go on sinning so that that grace can increase? No! It is interesting that he writes, that, that he says these things, it's just a few weeks earlier that he finished up the book of Romans, where he says, no, we do not keep sinning so that grace may increase. He is a consistent example. He's an example of service. There in verse 19, we, 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 we see him outlining there how he... Uh, uh, You know, serving the Lord, he's an example of humility, with all humility. Paul is an illustration of humility. There's an interesting set of quotes that come from the Apostle Paul. I'll share them with you. 1 Corinthians 5, 9. 1 Corinthians, uh, sorry, 15, 9. 1 Corinthians 15, 9, Paul says, I am the least of the apostles. Now, is there some humility to that? Yeah, I guess so. It's a bit like saying, you know, I'm the least of the astronauts. You know, I'm not claiming to be, you know, Neil Armstrong, but, you know, but I was an astronaut, hey. (laughs) 
There's some humility to that, but being the least of the apostles is still pretty high up there. Then later on we see this in Ephesians 3.8. I am the very least of all the saints. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? And then in Timothy, he writes this in 1 Timothy 1.15. Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Now, you know what's interesting about those three quotes? I just gave them to you chronologically. In the order in which they were written. That in the earlier part of his ministry, he writes to the Corinthians, I am the least of all the apostles. Later in the midst of his ministry, he writes to the Ephesians, I'm the least of all the saints. And when he's on death's doorstep and he's writing to Timothy, he says, I am the chief of all sinners. Foremost among all the sinners that Christ came to save. Now, had Paul's life gotten progressively worse? Had he become more morally bankrupt as he went on? Do we believe that he was desanctified? I just made up a word, by the way. Desanctified, I don't think it's a word. No! Paul was being sanctified. Paul was living a a purer, more holy life as time went on. So why does his evaluation of himself decrease? Because he saw Jesus more fully. Because he experienced God more deeply. Because he had had the Isaiah experience. Woe to me, I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the Lord. He had the experience of the Apostle John, who stood among the lampstands in the book of Revelation, and when turned around and saw the one like the Son of Man, fell as though dead. He had the experience that Peter had on the shore of Galilee with the miraculous catch of fish. When it dawned on Peter, the only one who can do that is God. And Peter falls to the bottom of the boat and says, Get away from me, Lord, I am a sinner. Paul was an increasing man of humility because he was an increasing man of God. Because he grew to know God better, to study God more, to understand him. And as he saw God more fully, as the veil was pulled back, as he experienced God through life, as he walked with God, he was struck by his own sin. And he said, wow, I can't believe that Jesus came to save me, the foremost of all sinners. If you do not have a deeper conviction of your sin tomorrow than you have today. It's because you haven't grown to know God better. Don't worry about quite so much fretting over your sin. Get to know God. Explore his word. Understand him more fully. You will begin to wonder, why did he save me? What a horrible sinner I am. Paul was an example not only of service and of humility and a consistent example. He is an example of perseverance through disappointment. There in verse 19, he talks about how he served them with tears. His life as a pastor was one of disappointment. We see this in the letter he writes to the Galatians, the first of the letters that he writes. How frustrated he is that the church has turned away to a gospel which was no gospel. And it breaks his heart. We see, as he writes to the Corinthian church, and tries to address all the many, many problems in that church, and it breaks his heart. But he perseveres. You know, one of the things that I can remember, I I had a neat experience as a child. 
My dad's best friend when I was a youngster was our pastor at our church. And so they would spend a lot of time together. And things like this would happen. We'd be in the garage. We'd be working on pastor's car. And I'd be out there as the assistant, the gopher, the tool runner, the light holder, all those things that I did back when I was, I don't know, 8, 10 years old. And they'd be talking, and pastor would be pouring out his heart to his best friend. And it was funny. It would often, four, 15, 20 minutes in, one of them would realize I was there and go, you don't ever repeat a word of what you just heard. We'll kill you. I'm like, sure, I'm silent. But it was, for me, an interesting thing to see behind the scenes of how that pastor wept over the disappointments in his church, over the people whom he had poured his life into and they walked away, over those whom he had prayed over, and there seemed to be no fruit in their lives. Paul had that same experience. He persevered, though. You are ministering to people. You are reaching out to your family members, to your neighbors. You're, you're holding a Bible study in your home. You're praying for a coworker. You're praying for a child. And there doesn't seem to be any response. Continue to serve with tears. Don't give up because of the disappointment. Don't quit because there seems to be no fruit. Paul continued to serve through the tears of disappointment. We see him uh, serving as an example of perseverance in the face of trials there in verses 19 and 20. How, you know, he did not shrink from declaring to you uh, anything. He did not shrink back, you know, even though there were plots against him there at the end of verse 19. We must not. We must realize that if we are proclaiming the truth of Jesus Christ, there will be opposition. If there's no opposition then either we're not speaking the truth of Jesus or we're only speaking it within his flock. Because the moment we take the truth of Jesus outside the flock, there's going to be opposition. And by the way, what do we see later in this text? There's going to be opposition from within the flock also. If you're talking about the gospel, if you're talking about salvation found only in Jesus, there's going to be opposition, but don't shrink back from it. He's an example of gospel faithfulness there in verse 21, testifying to both Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. He is saying consistently day in and day out, please understand the only way of salvation is to turn away from sin and to trust in Jesus. There is no other way. He was faithful to the gospel. We see it again in verse 24. He testified to the gospel of grace. He's an example of setting proper priorities. I do not account my life of any value. You know, for the vast majority of us, that's the number one value. That's the thing that we will give every resource to before anything else. When push comes to shove, our decisions are made on keeping ourselves alive. The groceries we choose to buy, the payments we choose to make on the house versus the car when money's tight, the, the decision we make about spending money on medications, all of these things are driven by keeping ourselves alive and to be sure we should. God gave us life. We're to protect life. We're to love life. We're to want to be alive. But Paul says there is a line for me. There comes a point where I will not protect my life. And it's if I'm ever faced with a choice between the gospel and my life. At that point, 
I count my life as nothing. We've already seen Paul. We've been in Acts long enough to know. Paul doesn't run to perseverance. He doesn't run to uh, perseverance, uh, 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 persecution. He doesn't run to it. He sometimes escapes quietly out of town to save his life. But when he's faced with no choice, he's not going to choose his life. He's going to choose the gospel. He's an example of priorities. And then he is an exemplary watchman. Did you hear our Old Testament reading today out of Ezekiel about the the warning to the watchman? Paul reflects on that wording here as he writes. He says, I testify you to this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. What is this? I'm innocent of the blood of all. He has in mind that passage in Ezekiel where the watchman is warned. If you do your job, watchman, if you proclaim the truth, watchman, if you warn the people and they ignore and die, it's on them. You're innocent of their blood. And Paul says, I have been that watchman. I can sleep comfortably at night knowing that I am not accountable for the blood of those around me who might be perishing because I have made every effort to tell them. Boy, wouldn't that be the sleep that you and I would enjoy? I wish I could say that. That I have been a faithful watchman at every turn. It's easy to stray on this regard. To, to, to declare the whole counsel of God is not as easy as one might think. And some of you will say, well, but pastor, come on, we're in the PCA. This is a conservative, Presbyterian, Bible-believing church. We would never deny any part of the gospel of God, the counsel of God. We would never point, tear a page out of our, you know, Thomas Jefferson, yeah, he cut out parts of his Bible. We would never do that. And we're not like the, the liberal Presbyterians where they would say, well, yeah, that doesn't apply today. No, pastor, we would never do that. You'd be amazed at how we do it. You know, we're a little more subtle about it, and perhaps that subtlety is actually a problem for us. You've seen it. You've been in the Sunday school class where the minute John Smith raises his hand, you look at your spouse and you roll your eyes and go, oh, this question's going to be about the Holy Spirit. Because every question from John Smith is about the Holy Spirit. And you begin to realize that John Smith has ignored the whole counsel of God and has decided that the Holy Spirit needs to be in every text. Even if the Holy Spirit didn't think he needed to be in that text... John Smith has decided the Holy Spirit better be in that text. And of course, there's somebody else, another person in Sunday school class, always going to bring up the sovereignty of God. Well, you know, it's because God is sovereign. Well, yeah, we know God's sovereign, but he sovereignly chose to leave his sovereignty out of this passage. Can we move on? And we begin to get our pet doctrines that those are the ones you better talk about. Don't convict me of sin, pastor. Just talk about the grace of Jesus. But you know what? As essential, as non-negotiable as the grace of Jesus is, you don't understand your need for it without some conviction of sin. When we say that it had better be about this, we've denied the whole counsel of God. We've said it needs to be about what we think it needs to be about. And it is for us a real danger. Paul is an example of how to fare well. 
He then moves on in verses 28 through 31, and he gives instruction on how to fare well. He tells them how to do it. Real quickly, a little bit of lesson on church polity. I know you didn't come here this morning going, gee, I'd really like to learn more about church polity. But nevertheless, we have this opportunity. Let's take it. In verse 17, you see the word elder in your English Bible. That is the Greek word presbyteros. Presbyteros. In a very literal, unflattering translation, it simply means old man. I like elder better. Presbyteros, you may recognize the sound of it. It is where we get the word Presbyterian. Ruled by elders. Elders. Here in verse 28, we have the word overseer, probably in most of your English translations. A few of them might have the word bishop. It is the Greek word episkopos, from which we get the word episcopalian. Episkopos. It is a form of government where there are bishops. There's a hierarchy. Now, what's really interesting is you notice here that he calls for the presbyteros to come meet him, the elders, and then he addresses them as episkopos, bishops. They're one and the same. They are here the same group of men. In other words, there are not tiers of overseers and shepherds and elders. There are not local priests over whom are bishops, over whom are cardinals, over whom is a pope. That is not how it's set up here. But rather here, we see that the, the presbyteros, the elders, and the episcopos, the bishops, are the same group of men. By the way, uh, Elder Bill was telling me earlier he would like you to call him bishop from now on. So. <laughs> they are the same group of men. They are called to be overseers. And so we do understand that we have the, 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 the model of church governance we hold to as Presbyterians. We see it right here. That it is clearly set forth in Scripture. Now, moving on. Instruction to the elders. And it's by... by we have to... Uh, we, we can't turn off at this point and say, well, I'm not an elder. This doesn't apply to me. But rather what we recognize throughout the Scriptures is the elders are always and everywhere, only those who, to whom God has granted the grace to, to, to be what we're all supposed to be. You know, uh, the, the elders are to be a husband of one wife. Does that mean every, you know, if you're not an elder, you can have multiple wives? You know, oh, give me the concubines. I'm not an elder. You know, that's not how it works. Okay? Um, rather, the elders are those whom God has granted the grace to be what they're supposed to be. And so we are all called to these things. So we see there in verse 28, uh, the, the, the warning, a double warning, to pay attention to yourself and to pay attention to the flock. Pay attention to yourself and pay attention to the flock. You know, the first place it starts always is with oneself. One of the great, I, what's the right word, discouragements of being a pastor. It's not a discouragement, but it's kind of a discouragement. I don't know how to word it is you're sitting there and you're wrestling with the text and you're thinking about the application points and you're thinking, oh, that's this. And then all of a sudden you go, oh, that applies to me. That's hard. That applies to me. I've got to hear this sermon. Even before I deliver it, I've got to hear it. And I've got to recognize that it applies to me. The elders are called to watch carefully over themselves, for they are the leaders of the flock. Throughout the scriptures, the scriptures hold leaders to a higher standard. The shepherds of Israel are judged more strictly. James says that we know those who would teach are going to be judged more severely. 
Because their sin affects more than just, all of our sin affects more than ourselves, but their sin, the sin of the elders, can take an entire flock off the cliff. And so they must watch themselves, and they must watch over the flock. But how does he say it there? How, why are you, what, with what attitude do you watch over the flock? Um, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. You know, when you borrow something, you borrow a car, you borrow a tool, you're a little extra careful with it, it ain't mine. I accidentally wrecked this, it ain't mine. I don't want to scratch this vehicle. It's not mine. I want to be a little extra careful with it. How much more so when it cost what the church cost? Paul says to the elders, you watch over that flock. As you're doing so, remember what it cost to obtain. That Jesus bought it at the price of his own life. His blood, his suffering, his obedience is what bought this flock. And he says in verses 29 and 30, watch out for wolves. And you notice how he words it there. There are going to be wolves that come from the outside. Those are usually a little easier to see coming. But there are going to be wolves that come from the inside. Those are tough. You want to know the tears that he was talking about earlier? That's where they come from most often. That's what breaks your elders' hearts. Those are the things that elders at every church I've ever been a part of, these are the things over which they, they ache and hurt. It's the wolves that come from within. And if you think for one moment that the, the, it, though it bahas like a sheep and it has white fluffy fur, and you think based on that we can ignore the blood dripping from its fangs, then you're not prepared to be an elder. An elder must be prepared, equipped, ready to recognize that there will be wolves from within the flock. And it is hard. It hurts to have to address that. And yet, that's what the elders are called to do. He, he, he challenges the elders to be alert he talks about the need to be alert. And then he says, uh, uh, let's see, I've got to find my verse here. Um, okay, therefore, uh, 31. Uh, uh, therefore, be alert, remembering that for uh, three years. Now, look, look at, to be alert, for what reason? What do the elders need to do? And this is where we sometimes get it wrong with this idea. You know, I, I'm not against the idea of pictures and teaching and usefully with the children, but we do have to be careful sometimes and think about how the, the steady diet of certain pictures that we present and how they've affected us here as adults. Because I think most of us have a pretty bad idea of what is meant by a shepherd. There's probably a couple of different images going through your head as you think about this shepherd, this one watching over the flock. Or perhaps it's the nativity scene shepherd that you're picturing. You know, a cute little guy with clothes that are just way too big on him, and they're a little sloppy, and he keeps, you know, talking to the other shepherds when he's not supposed to be up there, and, oh, isn't that cute and adorable? And that's your image of a shepherd. Perhaps it's the, it's the, 
a Hummel shepherd. You know the one, the soft glow of the face, just holding the sheep so gently. And that's your image of a shepherd. But shepherd were weather-beaten men, tired most of the time because they didn't get a lot of sleep out in the field, out in the weather, out in the elements, facing danger. Not having time necessarily to pet every one of the sheep. Sometimes having to really yell at the sheep. Get moving. I don't see the reason. I don't care. (laughs) It's my job to see the wolf. Get moving. We have this idea that the shepherd is this warm, fuzzy picture. But what do we see here when Paul says? Look at what he goes on to talk about there. Be alert. For what reason? Remembering that for three years I did not cease, night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. I can't handle admonishment twice in a week. If my wife mentions twice that I had done something wrong, she hates me and doesn't love me anymore, and, you know, I'm going to go out in the garden and eat worms. Paul says that his job among the Ephesians was continuous admonishment. Night and day, without ceasing, all the time, he was admonishing them. And I think to myself, how can this be? How can they possibly have this kind of affection for this guy? And then I'm reminded. You ever watch the interviews with the sports figures, the superstar sports figures? The interviews, I don't see as much of these anymore, but it used to be more common on, the, on like halftime of a football game or something. Um, they'd talk to, they'd have a special where they interviewed this player. And it was interesting to me how often when they would stick the microphone in the guy's face and say, what made the, what, what set you on the path to being a superstar defensive tackle? What, what put you on this trajectory to being the league leading quarterback? You know what was interesting to me? Not one time did I ever hear any of them say this. Well, you know, I had the seventh grade coach. He used to bring donuts to practice every day, and he was just really nice to us, let us do whatever we wanted. Well, that's never their testimony. It's always the coach who demanded more of them, who pushed them harder, who said, you can do better. You've got more skills and gifts, and you're not using them fully. And I think of my own experience, the teachers that I think back to in high school. Not the teachers who were fun. Ones I remember, the ones who expected more, admonished me, said, Scott, you are capable of more. Get your act together and start doing it. Now, to be sure, to be sure, Paul's admonishment is not, in your own strength, keep the covenant of works and earn your way to heaven. That is not what he's doing. But he is admonishing them. You have gone astray. Don't forget that Jesus died for you and bought you with his blood. You are headed off course. Don't forget that he is coming back one day. Do you want him to find you like this? Don't forget that he bought you with a great price and you are not your own. It is not self-centered, me-centered admonishment. It is Christ-centered admonishment, but it is admonishment. Finally, we see in 
the, uh, verses 32 to 35, I guess not technically finally, but close to being finally. Verses 32 to 35, we see Paul's commendation to farewell. He has set forth his example of himself and how to farewell. He has given them instruction on how to farewell. And now he gives them commendation to farewell. Do you remember the exercise of the yearbook in high school? Do you remember that? You had that experience, get to the, uh, the end of the year, that springtime, the yearbooks come out, and you're all getting ready to leave. You all, right, put something in my yearbook, write something in my yearbook. You read my yearbook. I think perhaps some of the worst writing in the history of English is in yearbooks. Just incredibly bad stuff. It comes down to this. You have one opportunity, one last probably, that senior year. You're going away. One last chance to say something to this person. You may never see them again. What are you going to say to them? What are you going to encourage them with? Have a great summer. Don't ever change. Really? As a 17-year-old, I wanted to change a lot. Don't tell me not to change. Stay cool. What would you say now? A little more mature, a little more time under your belt. You've got one opportunity to tell somebody this is what you need to hear. Look there in verse 32 to what Paul says. He says, and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. The thing I want ringing in your ears as I leave is this. Pursue God. Pursue his word. Be all about him and what he has said. Why? I commend you to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Paul says, if there is one thing you're going to hear, hear this. Stay in the word of God. Stay in the word of God. It is an interesting thing to me to watch how that simple thing plays out over time. The church I was a part of before coming here was celebrating its 100th anniversary back in 2015. And the senior pastor put together a history of the church, a really a lovely little summary of the 100 years of God's blessing to that church. And one of the things that was really interesting to me, he talked about it at great length, and we, you know, we'd, he'd be researching and writing, and we'd be bouncing things off each other in our offices. And he talked about how it was really interesting, how the church was faced with a choice in picking a pastor in the early 1940s. They had called a pastor. He was there just a few months, and he died unexpectedly. And they had to pick another pastor. And there were all these, it was a, you know, being a Presbyterian church, there were all these Princeton grads that were applying to be the pastor. There was this guy from Dallas Theological Seminary, which you go, if you know anything about seminaries, you say, that's not very Presbyterian, and it ain't. It ain't very Presbyterian. But the committee looked at all the, the, the different applications and went, that guy seems biblical. He seems like a Bible guy. And they called him, and he was pastor there for for 40 years. And while the church did stray from some of the, the doctrines of the Reformation during that time, it didn't stray from the word of God. 
There may be some misinterpretation and misapplication of the word of God, but the word of God was still central. And while much of the rest of the churches in that Presbyterian and that region became very liberal because they had hired reformed guys who didn't care about the word of God, God used that man to keep that church in his flock. Paul says, care about the word of God. I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. Should we care about other doctrines? Yeah, absolutely. I'd encourage you to stay for Sunday school today. We're going to talk about some reformed doctrines in Sunday school today. I think they're important. I think we should learn them. I think we should understand them. But boy, the central thing has got to be the word of God. I commend you to God and to his word. Because that, that, that will build you up. That will make you strong. Finally, in the closing verses, 36 through 38, we see Paul's farewell. Given all that he has uh, lived out before them, all the ways he has challenged them, all the spiritual push-ups he made them do when they didn't get it right, all the ways he he, uh, uh, called them to account, all the ways he admonished them, all the ways he uh, uh, lived faithfully before them. Now he's going away. They're just draped on his neck. They're hanging on him. We don't want you to go. Oh, we understand you have to. We understand the Spirit's called you. We're not telling you to ignore the Spirit and stay here, but we don't want you to go. What a beautiful thing. Which of us wouldn't long for that? Which of us right now says, boy, isn't going to say, boy, I, I, I want to think about my life so that someday this is the outcome. So that when it comes time for me to leave, there are members of my family, people I work with, people in my church who are heartbroken over my departure. Paul's farewell is rich with example and instruction and commendation on how to farewell. He did not just leave and leave these people on their own. So like him, I commend us to the word of God. I commend us to pursue the things that we see him describing here. So that the day should ever come that any one of us has to leave, we would feel the kind of hole that Paul left there. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this beautiful account of the message that Paul brought to the elders in Ephesus and that through your servant Luke you have brought to us today. And as we hear it, as we reflect on it, let us be men and women, boys and girls who desire to to cling to your word to be rich in it so that it will build us up, so that we will one day be examples of fearlessness in the face of trials, of perseverance in the face of hardship, of endurance in the face of disappointment, that we will be by your grace and through your word those who can instruct others, 
giving them the full counsel of God by which we might all be built up, that we would be in your hand, watchful of your flock, that we would be watchful of one another, but first and foremost, watchful over our own selves. Let us hear the message of warning and of encouragement, of challenge and of hope that Paul brought to Ephesus this day, that day. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.